Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I'm going to begin a series, a four-part series on money. Why? Well, because other than God himself... The Bible talks more about money than any other topic. We cannot separate our relationship with God from how we think about, how we make, and how we spend our, everybody say it, money. So we're going to spend four Sundays having a survey of what the Bible says about money, and it says a whole lot, so it's only a survey. We can't go in-depth, but we can get a general idea. We're first going to look at what Moses has to say about money. The next Sunday, we're going to look at what the prophets have to say about money. Third Sunday, we'll look at what Jesus has to say about money. And the fourth Sunday, we'll look at what Paul has to say about money. So let's get started today with Moses and money. Exodus chapter 19 Beginning with verse 3, then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. All right, so after the Exodus, after Moses led the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt, they were led to Mount Sinai, where Moses climbed up on Mount Sinai. And received the law from God, the Torah, that would become the foundation for the covenant that God was making with the people of Israel. So God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, not just to set them free, but to form them into an alternative society, a different kind of people. Here in our text, we're told that they were to be a priestly kingdom or a kingdom of priests, that they were to be a set-apart special people in the world who were an entire nation of priests, calling the rest of the world to know God and to follow God and to be reconciled to God. Of course, this idea of a kingdom of priests or a priestly kingdom shows up twice, or no, really three times in the New Testament. Peter talks about how we have been made in Christ a priestly kingdom, And then it shows up twice in the book of Revelation where the saints of God are called a kingdom of priests. Now, to be a truly different alternative society required Israel to have an alternative economy. If Israel now being delivered out of Egypt just carried with them the same thinking about money that the Egyptians had... 
in due course, just give them enough time, guess what they're going to be like? They're going to be like the Egyptians. And so to be a truly different society, an alternative society, a priestly kingdom, Israel would have to have a different economy than what they had known and experienced in Egypt. And central to Israel's holy economy is the knowledge that the whole earth is the Lord's. We're also told that in this text. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And so the first foundational idea as we build a holy economy is that the whole earth belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. The land belongs to God. That which grows upon the land belongs to God. That which is under the earth belongs to God. The oil belongs to God. The minerals belong to God. The gold and the silver belong to God. All of those minerals that are in your cell phones, those all, it all belongs to God. The air that we breathe belongs to God. And so we have to understand that before we even get started. Now in the book of Exodus, we see the radical difference between the economy of Pharaoh and the economy of Yahweh, the economy of God. In Egypt, the Israelites had been the victims of a rapacious and predatory economy. After all, they were, they were in bondage. Um, the Israelites were the foreign immigrants supplying cheap labor for the empire of Egypt. They were enslaved. They were tasked with making the bricks, which was sort of foundation to the Egyptian economy. Now, when God delivered the Israelites and set them free to build their own society, their economy was not to look like the one from which they had just been set free from, right? I mean, what would be the point of God saying, okay, I see you people, you are being oppressed in a rapacious and predatory economy, and I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to give you your place over here, and now just go ahead and build your own rapacious and predatory economy. I mean, that, that doesn't do any good. Uh, so it, and that's, that's why Solomon messed up so much. Um, Solomon, who was he? The wisest idiot in the Bible. And he knew better. A wizard should know better. An anointed king should know better, but in the end, driven by his lust for his building projects, he employed slave labor and even employed Hebrew slave labor. And so a hundred, several hundred years, several centuries after the Egyptians had been brought out of Egypt, Solomon makes the mistake of returning to a rapacious and predatory economy using slave labor, including Hebrew slaves. The Exodus includes a departure from the economy of empire. Once you get it, the Exodus includes, we're not, we're, not just, we're not just being set free from that which had us in bondage, but we're being set free from an economy that takes advantage of people. Have you, have you had your own Exodus? Yes, you have if you've been baptized. That's what baptism is. This Sunday, our gospel reading is... The baptism of Jesus. That'll be our gospel portion throughout the week. The baptism of Jesus. Well, baptism is many, many things, but it's also our own exodus. You know, the Israelites went down into the Red Sea. Their oppressors are drowned. They're brought up on the other side. 
We enter the waters of baptism leaving this world system as it is. And we enter the waters of baptism and come up on the other side into a new world. And as we enter into this new world that God has for us, it has a new economy unlike the one that we just left. Say amen to that. The economy of Pharaoh is an economy of fear and greed. That's what drives the economy of Pharaoh. Fear. Fear of lack and greed because there's never enough, never enough, never enough, never enough. There's never going to be enough. That's, if you want to know if it's an economy of Pharaoh, just look what's driving it. If it's driven by fear, the fear of lack, and greed, always got to have more, got to have more, got to have more. I never have enough, got to have more. If it's driven by fear and greed, it's the economy of Pharaoh. The economy of God, on the other hand, is the economy of trust and generosity. Those two words contain it all. Instead of an economy driven by fear and greed, that's the economy of Pharaoh, God calls us into an alternative economy that is based upon trust. We're going to trust God. We're going to trust God. God is our provider. We look to God. Trust and generosity, so we're not clutching tight-fistedly to every nickel and dime we can get our hands on. No, we have an open hand and we are generous to those around us. The experiences of Israel that you read about in Exodus in the wilderness and the law given to Israel at Mount Sinai were intended to shape Israel's economy into one based upon trust and generosity. In a holy economy, we trust God and are generous to those around us. The philosophy of Pharaoh's economy is love possessions and use people. That's the philosophy of Pharaoh's economy. What you really love is possessions, money, wealth. And what you do with people is you use them to get that. You love possessions and use people. Your goal is possessions, your goal is wealth, your goal is monetary increase, your goal is further acquisition of more possessions, and you use people toward that end. Of course, in the economy of God, the philosophy is entirely reversed, where we love people. First of all, we love God, but then in loving God, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love people and use possessions. Possessions are not unnecessary, they're not superfluous, they're needed, but they are utilitarian, they are a tool. What we love is God and we love people, what we use is possessions. Amen. At Sinai, Israel is forbidden to organize their lives around the pursuit of possessions. That's a radical thing, that's new, that has not really been found in the earth. But at Sinai, God is forming a chosen people, a new people, a priestly kingdom, and God wants to make sure that their lives are not organized around the pursuit of possessions. This is the complete opposite of how life is organized in Pharaoh's economy, where it's all about more, more, more the pursuit of possessions. Israel learns that even in the wilderness, because the wilderness is kind of a school for Israel to learn these things, in the wilderness, Israel learns that God can provide. I mean, it seems they're in a wilderness, you know. They're in a wilderness. It's not Egypt. There's no stores. There's no grain fields. There's no corn. There's none of that. There's no fishing industry. They're out in the wilderness, but they find out what? That God can provide. 
bread and meat, water from a rock if necessary. They learned the lesson that God can provide and that they can trust God. Um, when Israel tried to imitate what they'd learned in Egypt, remember they were provided with manna, right? And, and the manna came every day, except on the Sabbath. And they were to go and they were to gather just enough for one day, except, except the day before the Sabbath they would get two. But, it, but, if, but if on Monday they said, well, I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to get three days' worth of manna, does anybody remember what happened to that? It bred worms and became foul. In other words, it is corrupting. When we try to reach for more than what God intends to provide, it turns foul. It breeds worms. It's not good for us. So the economy of God is where we learn to live by trust and generosity. So let's look this morning at the commands of God given to Israel through Moses. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. This is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift from God to remind us to trust God and to refrain from overwork. In Egypt, they worked seven days a week. They just worked constantly. But once they have been delivered from Egypt and are in the process of being formed into a priestly kingdom, one of the things that is central to their formation is that they have a Sabbath, a day in which they do no work. The Sabbath is an act of resistance against Pharaoh's economy of fear and greed. Why would you just work, 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 work? Because you're afraid there won't be enough or because you're driven to have more and more and more and more. God says you won't be like that. There'll be a Sabbath. There'll be a day in which you do no work that will help deliver you from Pharaoh's economy that's driven by fear and greed. And there was probably nothing more central to Israel's unique identity than the Sabbath. There was no one else that did anything like that. The rest of the world just works, 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 works all the time. But there's this unique people that they have one day where they do no work at all. The Sabbath. All right, let's look at uh, Exodus 20, verse 17. This is the 10th of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So no coveting. Walter Brueggemann says, The emancipation of Israel from Pharaoh's Egypt was a departure from a regimen of inordinate coveting. I like that. Covetousness is a spiritual pathogen that produces chronic unhappiness. I want you to hear that. Coveting is a spiritual pathogen, a disease. An infection that produces chronic unhappiness. We're often content with what we have until we see what our neighbor has. That's a nervous laughter. <laughs> you know that. You know who else knows that? Every advertiser on the planet. You're content 
oftentimes with what you have until you look across the fence and go, look at that car. Look at that car. Look at that house. Look at that. I think I need one of those. Mimetic desire. Coveting. You want it not because really you ever wanted it. You just want it because you saw someone else nearby had it. God says, no, we're not going to do that in my economy because he knows how destructive that will be. Every study, and there's been a lot of studies, a lot of studies on happiness in recent years, and I've read some of them, you know, serious, long-term, peer-reviewed studies on happiness. And as happiness and money relate, they relate like this. If you are in poverty, getting more money will make you more happy. If you're truly in poverty, getting enough money to bring you out of poverty into a place of comfortable security will make you happy. But once you reach that level of just comfortable security, more money does not make you more happy. That's something we actually know. We actually didn't need a study to tell us that. We know it, we just don't believe it. We know it's true when we hear it. We go, nobody argues with it, but even all the studies show that that's the case, but somehow we don't believe it because we get infected with this spiritual pathogen of covetousness which produces chronic unhappiness. But Pharaoh's economy and Pharaoh's advertising agencies are designed to infect us with this pathogen of covetousness leading to unhappiness. That's why God warns us so strictly about following that path. Exodus 22, verse 21 You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. This speaks to immigrant labor. Developed societies often, almost always, depend on foreign immigrants as a force, uh, a source of cheap labor. Uh, This is nothing new. It's true in America, but it's true, it's been true from time immemorial. That as societies advance and develop, They look for a source of cheap labor. It's almost always immigrants leaving a bad situation, looking for employment in a more prosperous, more healthy, more flourishing civilization. Well, Moses tells Israel, tells Israel from God, that in the economy of God, immigrants must be treated fairly. He says, sure, you can have immigrant labor, but you have, to treat it, you have to treat them fairly because it's always easy to take advantage of immigrants. So much is against them. And it's easy to take advantage of them, but God says to Israel, his priestly kingdom, just because you can take advantage of these immigrants, don't do it. Remember when you were one. He says, hey, remember you were in that same situation. And don't repeat the abuse of the Egyptians on you. Don't you do that to the immigrant laborers that are going to be among you. Exodus 22, verse 25 through 27. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn... You shall restore it before the sun goes down. For it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as a cover. And what else shall that person sleep? 
And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate, says the Lord. So compassionate lending. In the economy of God, Israel was forbidden to engage in predatory lending practices. The borrower is subject to the lender. We know that. We know that in life. We know that from the book of Proverbs. And so the borrower is always in a vulnerable position. God says, be careful that you do not take undue advantage of them. God says, you know, if, if someone pawns their cloak to you because they need to buy some daily bread, I, he, God says, I just say, you just better even give it back before the sun goes down because that might be the only thing that they have to keep them warm at night. And if they're cold, they might cry out to me and I'll pay attention to it. So, compassionate lending. In the economy that Moses is introducing to emancipated Israel, lending is not just a transaction between borrower and lender. That's, that's how in Pharaoh's economy, borrowing and lending is a transaction between two, a borrower and a lender, borrower and lender. Moses says in Israel, in this priestly kingdom, in the economy of God, the, the process of lending is going to involve three parties. Borrower, lender, and God. That God will be present to it. God will observe. And the Israelites were not to take advantage of their debtors just because they could. Because God says you must be compassionate. Why? Because God says I'm compassionate. And the role of a priestly kingdom is to reveal to the world what God is like. And God is compassionate. And so we must be compassionate in lending practices. Leviticus chapter 27 Verse 30, the tithe from the land is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The tithe, the tenth, that's what tithe means, it means tenth. In ancient agrarian Near East culture, a tithe of the produce of the land was paid to the landlord, the landowner. All right, so in ancient Near East agrarian culture. This is the setting for Israel in the Old Testament. In that culture, one-tenth of the produce of the land would be paid to the land owner. So if you were a land owner, though, then, then you didn't have any tithe to pay because you were the land owner, so you could keep all of it. But in Israel, it's different. In Israel, no, even if you own the land and it's your land, you have to acknowledge that who is the true landowner? God. God is the true landowner. And so even if you own the land, you think, well, no, I own the land in, as a steward, in stewardship. It actually all belongs to God. So in tithing to God, Israel was reminded that the whole earth belongs to God. And in giving the first tenth, Israel acknowledged that it all belongs to God and thus redeemed the other nine-tenths from becoming an idol. If you say, I want it all, I want it all, it becomes an idol. It eclipses God. You forget God. You begin to be formed in wrong ways. You become unjust and all sorts of things. By giving God the first tenth, you say, no, no, no. Uh, 
I understand that it all belongs to God, and I honor God as the true landlord, as the true owner of all things. I give God the first tenth, and then that has the, the capacity then to sanctify the nine tenths and keep it from becoming corrupting, keep it from breeding worms and becoming foul. The secondary purpose, the secondary purpose of the tithe was to provide for the tabernacle and the priesthood. The primary purpose of the tithe, though, was to honor God as the landlord of the whole earth. So the tithe did have a utilitarian function in that it provided for the tabernacle and the priesthood, but that was the secondary. That wasn't the real reason. If there was just always an abundance and enough for the tabernacle and the priesthood, Israel would still be required to tithe anyway because the primary purpose of the tithe was it was a way of acknowledging that God is the landlord of the whole earth. Deuteronomy chapter 15. i got to get over there. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts. Debt cancellation. Every seventh year, all debts were canceled. Just let that sink in. This is, this is the economy of Israel given by God through Moses. Every seventh year, all debts are canceled. Let that sink in. <laughs> Every seventh year, all debts are canceled. Nothing like that, nothing remotely like that ever happened in Pharaoh's economy. In fact, in fact, do you know that Pharaoh made his fortune and gained his power through an exploitation of debt? It's also, it's, there's a whole chapter on it. Genesis 47 tells you how Pharaoh goes from being simply the monarch that's at the pinnacle of a particular society to actually being the one who owned everything. In fact, um, and God is deeply committed that Israel not go down that path. So unlike Pharaoh's economy, debt would not be the foundation of Israel's economy. In the Bible, the cancellation of debt is deeply connected with forgiveness. So refusing to cancel debts is seen by God as a refusal to forgive. And of course, we know how that works. When we refuse to forgive, then we cut ourselves off from the experience of God's forgiveness. That's why... The Lord's Prayer, part of it is often, we say, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But it's just as legitimately translated, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. Forgive us our debts, God, as we forgive our debtors. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7. If there is among you anyone in need a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near. And therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. 
since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. An economy of generosity. In the economy of God, generosity is not an option. It's commanded. God says to his priestly nation, don't be don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. Open your hand. Willingly lend. Give liberally. This was part of Israel's calling to be a unique people, to be a kingdom of priests who showed the world what God is like. And come on now, God is generous. God is not hard-hearted. God is not tight-fisted. God gives generously. He says, okay, I want my priestly nation to show that, demonstrate that to the world by not being hard-hearted, not being tight-fisted, but to be generous, to give with an open hand, lending willingly, giving liberally and generously. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 24. In the year of Jubilee, land must be restored to the family from whom it was purchased. The year of Jubilee. So here's how it worked in the economy of God given to Israel by Moses. Every seventh year, debts are canceled. Monetary debts are canceled. Every 50 years, all real estate was to be restored to its original owners. It's a very radical thing. Every 50 years, there's this massive reset. And all land goes back to the original owners. Of course, nothing like this happened in Pharaoh's economy. Because Pharaoh exploited debt during a famine, Pharaoh bought up all the land. That's what happened. I mean, like I said earlier, Pharaoh was the monarch over a particular nation. But eventually he became inordinately powerful and wealthy because he ended up owning everything. And he did so by taking advantage of people during a famine. Again, this is all set forth in Genesis 47. In fact, at the end of that, Genesis 47, 26, it says, It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. So in Egypt, this leads up to Pharaoh then becoming the one who, who oppresses the Israelites living in the land. Pharaoh owned all the land except for the priestly elite because, you know, Pharaoh always needed a priestly elite to come along and say, well, this is God's will. This is God's will. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You don't need land. Pharaoh will have all the land. Thus saith, you know, Marduk or whatever God they're worshiping there, Ra. And so, the, so all of the land in Egypt was owned by Pharaoh and his priestly elite that would bless what he was doing. Well, God did not want that in his alternative society, in his chosen people, in his holy nation, in his priestly kingdom. And so God said, it's not going to be that way among you. And Jubilee was to prevent that from happening in Israel, to prevent a minority of the super rich exploiting a permanent underclass. God says, we're not going to have that in my holy nation. Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is the last passage we'll look at. We're talking about Moses and what he gave Israel as a command from God about money. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11, kind of a lengthy passage, but listen carefully. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God 
by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. So God was not opposed to the wealth and prosperity of the Israelites. He said, yeah, the day's going to come. You're going to build fine houses. Your flocks and herds are going to multiply. Your silver and gold is going to multiply. You're going to become prosperous God's not opposed to that. He says, but don't forget me when it happens. You ever seen people that uh, when, it's, when they're starting out, maybe a long time ago, maybe they're young and they're starting out and they don't have much. And, uh, but they tithe and they give to God and they put God first because they're trusting God because they have to trust God and they can just barely get by. But over time, finally, you know, I mean, they're going through the wilderness of their life, you know, it's an arid wasteland, poisonous snakes and scorpions, and, but they have to trust God, and they honor God with the tie, and they honor God, and, but then they finally, you know, finally they get in a place where they're, you know, the business is doing well, and they're making more, and there's more and more money, and pretty soon they've, yeah, that would, that would be too big a tithe. Well, I'll just put in a $5 bill. And they begin to forget God. God knows all about that, and he says, don't do that. He said, that, that will lead to some kind of destruction of your soul. Don't do that. So, God is not opposed to wealth. God is not opposed to prosperity. As long, but you have to be careful because it can become an idol. And it can eclipse God. And then you forget God. And then all kinds of destructive things begin to flow into your life. So, through the practices that God gave Moses to give to Israel, the practices of Sabbath, tithing, generosity, debt cancellation, and jubilee, Israel was given a way of enjoying their prosperity without forgetting God. Now, when we get to Jesus, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that what Jesus says about money is entirely informed by Moses. Jesus really doesn't say much new about money. I mean, he talks about money a lot, a whole lot. But he doesn't say much other than what Moses had already said. But Jesus knows that they haven't lived up to what God had given to Israel through Moses, and he's calling them to it. Jesus calls his disciples to live out what was first set forth by Moses. When Jesus calls us to do this, He's calling us into the economy of God, an economy of trust and generosity. 
And if we, will, if we live in the economy of Pharaoh, we'll be plagued by anxiety and idolatry. But if we live in the economy of God, we will experience true freedom. One more time. If we live in the economy of Pharaoh, an economy driven by fear and greed, we will be plagued by anxiety and idolatry. But if we live in the economy of God, we will experience true freedom. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. And let's get ready to come to the table where we will receive the generous gift of God. Life given to us.